Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Cheryl Toth and Mike Sakopoulos, and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. Tothy, I think we can all agree that 2020, bad year. No argument here, dude. I mean, everyone, including me and you, of course, we look forward to happier, healthier days ahead. Looking forward to the future, in part, is the subject of this podcast. Hmm. We will be speaking with School of Business professor and Wall Street Journal bestselling author Mauro Guillen about his new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Wow. Well, that is a title that really makes me want to crack the book. I mean, it sounds very interesting. And Professor Guillen is amazing in this interview. His book highlights where healthcare is headed, and some of the statistics that he talks about in your conversation are pretty unbelievable. That is so true. And look, despite my best efforts, Tothi, I did not get any hot stock tips from Professor Guillen. What I did get (laughs) was a fascinating perspective on where we as a nation are headed. And that's good because, you know, not every success has to be about stock tips. It can be about where things are headed. And that perspective is really intriguing. I think our listeners are going to love it. So I'm looking forward to the full interview as our listeners are. But first, do you have a word of the show for us today? That I do, Tothi. Here it is. Capnomancy. And it is the telling of the future or divination by means of smoke. By means of smoke. So like there's smoke and then they read the smoke, like they read tea leaves or something? How does that work? Look, look, you use whatever kind of smoke you want to (laughs) divine the future. But yes, that's the general uh, general idea. And I have to say it is not in my repertoire of skills as to how to do this, but that's what the word is. All right. So it won't be by means of smoke. It's a very obscure word. So it sounds like I won't be going to you for any kind of capnomancy anytime soon. But uh, perhaps you can predict the future on some things, but we'll leave it to a professional to do it via capnomancy. And with that, let us listen to your conversation with Professor Yen. My guest today on Sound Practice is Professor Mario Guillen, who is a Spanish-American sociologist, political economist, and management educator. He's the Zanman Professor at the School of Business, University of Pennsylvania, Director of the Penn Lauder Center for International Business Education and Research. Professor Yen is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author of the book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. That book was published this year, 2020, by Macmillan St. Martin Press. Professor, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me. Ah, it is it is our pleasure. Well, let's start with your your, your book. In, in, in your new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the future of everything, you describe in detail the opportunities for women in 2030. A chapter entitled The Second Sex No More, New Millionaires and Entrepreneurs, optimistically titled, I should, I should note, you highlight this, this research on women's growing roles in, in business and society. Can you talk a little bit about that for me, please? Yeah, so as you know, women in many countries around the world 
uh, although not in all countries around the world, have now better access to all sorts of things, to healthcare, but also, more importantly, to education. And as a result of that, they're making progress with their careers. We have now more women, for example, in the United States attending college than men. And women are still discriminated against. I'm not going to argue that they are not in the labor force in the workplace. Uh, but essentially, they are making progress with their careers. As a result of that, as you know, also they're postponing having their babies, uh, but they're getting promoted, they're accumulating wealth. Now, obviously, not all women are participating in this trend, even here in the United States, because many of them drop out of high school, or they get pregnant while they are teenagers, uh, or they get a divorce. Let's not also forget that, uh, on average, divorced women end up being worse off financially. So... The same as with men, there are inequalities within women, right? Uh, but in general, what is going on is that we're seeing more and more women making progress with their careers and doing much better from an economic point of view in the economy. That's optimistic news. And you see that outside of the United States as well? Absolutely. So this trend has been going on in Europe for the longest time now. Uh, but if you go to um, East Asia, uh, it is certainly underway in China. It has been in Japan, especially over the last uh, 10 years or so, because if you remember, educated Japanese women used to stay at home when they got married, but now they're working because of population aging in that country. They need more people to work. And astonishingly, it's also taking place in Africa that we're seeing in many countries, especially in the urban areas, women doing better and better, both educationally and also in terms of their jobs. So this is a global phenomenon. But of course, I'm not going to say that we should declare victory. We, we need to wait, uh, you know, uh, perhaps another 20 or 30 years before we can reach anything that, uh, that resembles uh, parity between the two genders. Understood. Now, there's some research that links education to desire and access to health care. That um, is, as education increases, uh, there is a greater demand for health care. Do you see this as uh, something that we should expect uh, by, by 2030 for women um, with increased education in perhaps places like Africa demanding more health care? Absolutely, uh, because education makes you aware not only of uh, what are your rights in society, but also aware of the many benefits uh, that exist out there. Uh, and uh, that awareness, I think, translates into... Um, a desire to, for example, uh, get better healthcare, especially preventative healthcare. Uh, and in addition, I should say, education also gives you, on, on average, higher income. And therefore, that also helps you afford better healthcare for yourself and also for your children, and in some cases, also for your parents. Uh, so, yes, I think uh, this is uh, going to be a very important trend over the next 10 years in the world. Let's shift focus. You describe in your in your book what the face of leadership will look like in 2030. And as you know, the audience of this podcast is primarily physician leaders and uh, and staff. How do you suggest that these individuals prepare for global leadership roles in 2030? Well, uh, we are facing many challenges, of course, but also there's huge opportunities. Uh, I would say that uh, one of the greatest challenges, uh, but again, it can also be seen as an opportunity, is population aging. 
as you know, women, as I mentioned, uh, are postponing having babies. They end up having fewer. This has been going on here in the United States and in Europe, in Japan for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Uh, but we're getting a to a point in which uh, we're going to have, by the year 2030, in Japan, in China, in Europe, in the United States, more grandparents and grandchildren. <laughs> and uh, mm. think about what that means. What that means essentially is that the population above age 60 is going to become the largest age group. You see, typically what you have is that the younger age group is the largest in society, but no longer. That's no longer going to be the case. So I think that's going to introduce some interesting challenges. But what I would like to tell the physicians uh, listening is something that they already know, but that has enormous implications, which is that a 60-year-old today or a 70-year-old today is in much better mental and physical shape than that same person of that age 50 years ago. So in other words, I think we also need to revisit what qualifies as old and what qualifies as young, um, because we stay in good physical and mental shape for a much longer period of time. And also we're living longer, right? So a 60 year old may expect to live on average another 25 years or 27 years in the United States, even more so if we're talking about women. Uh, so I think um, the other thing that we may have to revisit is this idea that we have children, we have people who work, and then we have people who are in retirement. And increasingly, that population above the age of 60 or 70, um, it's not going to be in retirement. Maybe they're going to be working part-time. They're going to be enjoying life. They're going to have a lifestyle that our grandparents never had, but that tomorrow's grandparents will have. Uh, so I think that's really important. It presents a number of, I think, great opportunities for healthcare. It represents also um, a challenge, I think, for physicians and for everyone else working in the healthcare sector. And does it, at the other end of the spectrum, create some problems with young leaders not having as much upward mobility because spots are not opening up as people retire? Well, yes, what we have is right now, um, you know, the so-called millennial generation. So just to simplify things, people in their 20s and in their 30s right now, um, you know, they're having a tough time. Uh, not just because of technological change and uh, because uh, of all of the turmoil in the world. But let's not forget, uh, this is uh, now the pandemic, the second crisis they've gone through during their adult lives, right? Uh, so the first one being the global financial crisis of 2008. So they, they're facing a very tough labor market. And again, technological change and all of those. Now, on the positive side, this is the best educated generation in history. Uh, so I'm also hoping that at least that part of it that is very well educated will do increasingly better. But as you were pointing out, there's going to be a lot of challenges, not just because we have more people above the age of 60 who may continue working, but also because of technological change and because of the two economic recessions that have taken place uh, while these people have been either you know, entering the labor market or already working. I could see how that would be formative to them. Um, you mentioned technology. What, let's, let's move there. Uh, specifically, robotics, as they apply to medicine and, and surgery. You cite research related to the use of robotic technology in healthcare. Could you describe those trends in surgery and other tech innovations to come? Yes, so obviously I'm not a specialist in uh, technology, robotic technology, as it applies to the uh, operating room, uh, and some of uh, the listeners uh, may be. Uh, but I think this is clearly a revolution because uh, not only it reduces the, uh, the number of days that people need to stay at the hospital, but it also speeds up recovery. 
And uh, in some cases, uh, we know that the robot may do a better job than the human hand, right? So we still need human intervention, although I strongly suspect that another kind of robotics, not, not the usual kind, artificial intelligence, right? Meaning replacing not the hands of uh, people, but rather their brains, at least partially. I think that's where we're going to see even more uh, change, right? So for example, in the development of new therapies or therapeutic treatments for diseases, um, artificial intelligence is increasingly playing a role because we all know sometimes medicine is not an exact science. And uh, whenever something is not an exact science, then I think the scope for using artificial intelligence applications uh, becomes much, much broader. So I would like to expand, I think, uh, you know, the definition of uh, robotics in the sense of uh, human beings being at least partially replaced by machines, not just uh, to include our hands, but also our brains. And I think um, the field of medicine and healthcare will be transformed by artificial intelligence, as well as by robotics, no doubt about it. So you're exactly correct when you say that, that it's not an exact science when it comes to medicine. And certainly there is a degree of art to the practice of, of medicine. And it seems to me that that art will be impacted directly by the growth of, of technology and how patients interact with their physicians and in, in technology. Do you agree? And if so, oh, what do you absolutely. think these implications will be? Absolutely. Look, um, I think occupation after occupation, um, especially those um, that require high levels of education, are being transformed. Think about airline pilots. Airline pilots used to be at the controls, right? And uh, maybe they were wearing a scarf, right? <laughs> at some point, and, uh, and a very funny dashing. hat, and yes, uh, some goggles, right? Hmm. And they would be in control of the airplane. But since about 20 years ago, airline pilots have become information processors, right? So they're interacting with computers. Uh, it's not that the plane can fly itself, which is almost true, uh, but they need to become more like uh, information processors. Uh, I think this is also happening with lawyers. It's happening with college professors like myself. And I believe it is increasingly also happening with physicians and with uh, nurses and with other occupations in healthcare. So I think the name of the game is not that computers will replace us, but rather how can we be more creative, more productive, more effective at what we do by leveraging the power of computers. So helping computers make the best out of our own intelligence. I think that's where, for example, the work of physicians and nurses is going increasingly, that everybody, including once again, lawyers and college professors and airline pilots is just becoming so much more integrated, right? Into this system in which we have machines that are increasingly smart, but that still, you know, it's better for all of us to have human intervention. And that's where the doctors and the nurses and the professors and the lawyers come in. So it, it almost seems that we're talking about a change in the definition of intelligence from what you know to what you're able to access and integrate with. Oh, absolutely. But I think this is part of a, of a very long trend that has been going on for tens of thousands of years since the moment in which humans you know, came up with the first tools, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, I think uh, the relationship between humans uh, and workers, right? Humans as they do work 
and their environment has just been constantly evolving. But of course, over the last 20 years or so, uh, we've packed, you know, tens of thousands of years of evolution into just a mere couple of decades. And I think the coming decades between now and 2030 will be an even greater acceleration of that trend in which human use of tools that we create for ourselves, including computers with artificial intelligence, robotics, all of these things, will just greatly expand the horizons of what we can achieve as human beings. Professor, you touched on this a little earlier, but it seems that advertising attention um, is is focused on the millennial generation. But in your in your book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, you quote some incredible uh, statistics. Uh, one is that in the um, every day in the United States, 12,000 individuals turn 60 years uh, old. And in China, 54,000 individuals turn 60 years old. Uh, in the rest of the world, another 210,000 turn 60 each day. This certainly has tremendous uh, implications. And I know you've touched on this, but, but these numbers are so stunning to me that I'd like to talk a little bit more uh, about the implications of um, this kind of, of senior market? Yeah, look, the first implication is that by the year 2030, not only we will have more grandparents than grandchildren, but also the largest consumer segment in terms of spending power will be people above the age of 60, beginning once again with Japan, China, Europe, and the United States, right, Canada. So another implication here, uh, really important to keep in mind, is that, you see, most of the wealth in the world the net worth will be owned by people above the age of 60. Here in the United States, it's about 80% of the net worth being owned by people above the age of 60. And remember, they are expected to live uh, another 20 or 25 years on average. In some other parts of the world, um, it's uh, about between 60 and 70% of the wealth or the net worth being owned by people above the age of 60. So everything is going to change as a result of this. Consumer markets, financial markets, Politics, I think, also yeah, are going to change in the election that just took place here in the United States. We saw that in some states, the difference came from not only suburban women, but also more generally senior citizens, right? Um, so um, I think it's likely going to change philanthropy as well. So this is something new. Our societies around the world weren't this way. We had more people in the younger age groups. The age pyramid, right, looked like a pyramid. And now we're getting into a situation in which the age pyramid will look like an inverted pyramid, right? We're turning the age pyramid on its head within every country in the world at some point having more people in the older age groups than in the younger age groups. Fascinating. As a follow-up to this, it seems important to consider the out-of-pocket healthcare costs for U.S citizens. For Europe, Japan, and Canada, their portion of discretionary spending, uh, you cite, is 12% or 12 percentage points higher than in the U.S. because of their lower health care costs. This spending can be on items like apparel or in happier days travel, uh, leisure, and uh, uh, this all helps their economies. And I would argue that the quality of life for their citizens, uh, rather than what is happening in the, in the U.S. Could you expand on this? 
Yes, absolutely. So in those parts of the world, and it's a minority of countries where people have guaranteed healthcare throughout their lives, um, people who are relying on a pension, for example, let's say they are 65 or 70 or 75 years old, they tend to have a greater proportion of their income as discretionary that they can spend in other things. So this is income that you don't spend on food, you don't spend on other essentials like your your home uh, or healthcare, right? Um, than here in the United States. Uh, and the reason once again is because here in the United States, there's so much more by way of uh, out-of-pocket expenses, even when you're at least in part covered by Medicare in your old age, right, so to speak. So. Uh, so this makes a big difference when it comes to consumer markets and when it comes to the amount of money that people need to set aside for retirement. Uh, so this also means that here, people in the United States, they think they need to think more carefully about how much money, how much income they're going to have available uh, once they decide to retire. Um, so healthcare, from the point of view of uh, how much um, you know uh, out-of-pocket spending people need to uh, make, uh, has a very large impact on the purchasing power of people above uh, the age of 60 or 65. Uh, and that in turn has a big impact on consumer markets. Let's talk a little bit about the consumer markets. Where is the discretionary income do you project going to flow for this group over 60 in 2030? Well, look, um, I think that it's very clear at this point that when people turn 60 or 65 or 70, what they want to do is to continue enjoying life to the fullest. So for them, quality of life is the single most important thing. And so my prediction in the book is that people will allocate whatever money they have to maintain that lifestyle. They want to continue being active. As you mentioned, they want to continue enjoying leisure activities, including travel perhaps. Uh, after this pandemic. Um, they want to continue having a good life. They don't want to be sedentary. They don't want to just be waiting for the worst to arrive. So I think that's how we should think about their pattern of consumption. And of course, they're going to be spending money, right, uh, on services such as healthcare, especially preventative healthcare, that would enable them to make sure that they will stay fit and healthy for the longest period of time. Uh, so it's not just that they're gonna be spending money on you know, streaming now, right? Movies because they cannot travel. No, they're also gonna be spending more money on certain categories of healthcare or preventative fair care that will help them maintain that lifestyle for the longest period of time. Professor, your, your book came out, as you mentioned, in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, with the title of, of 2030. And I think that we all want to look forward to the uh, future in from where we are in, in 2020. So uh, well-timed, my friend. Um, but as, as things go, we've seen uh, COVID-19 and the pandemic uh, accelerate certain trends that were already there. In healthcare, I'm thinking about um, telehealth. But there's certainly many others that you're aware of and that I, I am I'm not. Maybe we could we could talk about uh, assessing uh, trends of uh, being accelerated by by COVID nineteen as they relate to to healthcare, or human resources in the workforce, or or technology uh, innovations. Absolutely. So you've put your finger on what I think is uh, one of the most important 
issues that we need to be aware of, which is that this pandemic, rather than you know, derail pre-existing trends, rather than reshaping the way in which the world was evolving, what it's doing is accelerating across the board so many trends, right? And so my only regret, Michael, to tell you the truth, is that instead of uh, calling the book 2030, maybe I should have called it 2028. Because as a result of this acceleration of trends, then that future is arriving much faster than we thought. Uh, let me give you three examples, right? So in the book, I discuss demographics, changes in population. Well, look, the pandemic essentially is telling young couples, let's not make any big decisions. Maybe they've lost the job. Maybe they fear they might lose their job. So they're postponing having babies. And the mere postponement of having babies will accelerate the decline in fertility. And as a result, we'll also accelerate something else, which is population aging, right? So this very important trend that we were discussing earlier will be accelerated by this pandemic. Societies around the world are going to age faster as a result of something like this. And now this is also gonna change markets. And look, emerging markets, especially in Asia, so I'm thinking here about South Korea, China, Taiwan, Vietnam, they have done a much better job at controlling the virus. So their economies are recovering much faster. They're surging ahead. And then the last one you mentioned is technology adoption. You and I are now using technology that perhaps we wouldn't be using before the pandemic. Telemedicine at long last. You see, in Africa, they've been practicing telemedicine for the longest time out of necessity because they don't have enough doctors uh, because they have a, a dispersed rural population. Here in the United States, we're now catching up and also in Europe with telemedicine. But across the board, remote work was something that was going on before this pandemic. But of course, the pandemic, once again, has put it, has meant that now we're working using one of these platforms. So essentially, we see across the board an acceleration of trends, right? And of course, we still don't know exactly where we're going to be once we have a vaccine, effective vaccine, or we have effective treatments, and we manage to bring this pandemic under control. But what I think is safe to say is that that future that we thought was coming, is just going to be arriving much, much faster in all areas, right? Including healthcare, absolutely including healthcare. And I think telemedicine is something that is going to stay with us. It's going to keep on growing. I've seen this uh, at the hospital system of my university, the University of Pennsylvania Health System. Uh, it's, uh, it's happening everywhere. This is not going to go away after the pandemic is brought out of control. This is going to stay with us forever. I think you're. I think you're correct. Well, in the global healthcare sphere, and more, I guess, specifically in the United States, do you have any other suggestions of of trends that our physician leaders listening to this podcast should be monitoring as we collectively prepare for a different world in 2030? I think uh, the one thing that we haven't talked about, Michael, and I, th I believe it's extremely important uh, to uh, allocate a few minutes to it is inequality. Um, so as you know, inequality you know, has been growing in terms of income, in terms of wealth, in terms of access to education, in terms of access to healthcare uh, in many parts of the world over the last 20 or 30 years. And once again, what we see, Michael, is that the pandemic accelerates that trend towards higher inequality. We're seeing this by gender, by race, by ethnicity, by income level, by type of work. You and I have the privilege of being able to work from home, but a lot of people don't. And so they are more exposed to the virus. So, 
I think that is something that I would like to emphasize. I'm sure that the listeners are keenly aware of this, but it's something that we need to pay attention to. Because if inequality gets out of control, that is bad for everyone, not just for the people who are suffering from it, for everyone. Because our societies, our democratic societies, and our economies depend on a distribution of income and wealth that is much more egalitarian than the levels that we have right now. Think about our consumer-oriented economy. We need purchasing power from a large number of people, but also the society, right? And it's only fair that we have, I think, a, or we achieve a lower level of inequality. Um, so I think this is something really important to watch. And I think uh, it is something that uh, affects directly the healthcare sector. Because what we're seeing as a result of this pandemic is so many of these inequalities that existed before the pandemic just become magnified, become exacerbated by it. And we're seeing that, as you know, cases, hospitalizations, fatalities among certain groups in the population, so lower income, uh, members of minority groups, um, are much higher than for the general population. Interesting and and very sad. Well, We'll have to uh, to end on on that note. My guest has been Professor Mario Gian, who is at the School of Business, University of uh, Pennsylvania. He is the author of the fabulous new book, 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything. Professor Gian, thank you so much for joining us on Sound Practice. Michael, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Wow, Mike, that interview with Professor Gian was so good. And I, I think his view of 2030, just it had me transfixed. Ooh, me too, Tothi. Look, his discussion of the inverted aging pyramid of the population makes sense once it's explained, but teasing out the ramifications of that, really interesting. Well, and I think Professor Guillen's attention to healthcare trends was really, it seemed to me to be really spot on. And I, I just enjoyed this interview a whole lot. So did I. And Tothi, you know who we have to thank for this? Who? Our sound practice producer at AAPL, Nancy Collins. Oh, yeah. For suggesting Professor Gien to be a guest. That's right. Thank you, Nancy. And with that, we are at the end of another episode of Sound Practice. And I hope everyone enjoyed your conversation today with Professor uh, Gien. And if you did, please rate us or consider rating us on our website, soundpracticepodcast.com or on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Oh, yeah, we would like that. And if you'd like to give us some direct uh, feedback or make a suggestion about the podcast, please email us at feedback at soundpracticepodcast.com. And of course, we hope you will join us next time on Sound Practice. Don't forget, we release a new episode every other Wednesday. Bada bing, bada boom. Bada bing, bada boom. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Robin. 
Goodbye.